All right, good morning. Good to be with you all again. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for this opportunity to talk about the truth of your word. I thank you, I I especially see as we turn to this topic, that your word really is sufficient. That there is no aspect of our lives, no matter how important, no matter how even private, that your word does not address in a very direct and edifying way in a way that gives life, and in a way that encourages us toward holiness and loving you. God, I pray that you would uh, work through these truths in those kinds of ways during this time. God, I pray that you would uh, renew all of our minds in holiness and in righteousness by this truth, so that we could uh, put on the new self that we've been given in Christ more. And God, I pray the words I speak and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, And we offer them to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last month, Brian Gaines, I think it was Brian, talked to you a session about sexual sin. This lecture is the positive side of the same topic, sexual intimacy in marriage. There is a much fuller and more positive view of sex in the Bible than just avoid sexual sin. And this is something we have to teach All people, including all Christians, they will have their views about sex and marriage shaped by something. And if it's not the Word of God, then what is it going to be shaped by? The world and the devil, they are presenting a view of sex to you and to your counselees and to your friends and to your children in many different ways, subtle and not so subtle. I think especially in in a a hyper-sexualized culture like ours, we need to teach the positive, beautiful, biblical view of what God intends sex and marriage to be. Uh, And this is a topic that comes up very frequently in biblical counseling. Uh, Today, I aim to give you just a good foundation, which you can hopefully build on in more specifics through other solid teachings, resources, Uh, like ones they sell in the conference bookstore, for example. But today I'm going to give you five foundational truths for a biblical view of sex in marriage. Here's the first. Sex in marriage is good and holy and for God's glory. And this is something some don't really understand. Many believers can even struggle to believe it. If all they hear from the Word is, is how the Word warns about sexual immorality, well, if that's all they hear, then you... Maybe it makes sense if they start to think, well, maybe there's something immoral about sex. Let's establish this in the Word. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. And while you're turning there, let me remind you of something, that God is the author of sex. He made it in the Garden of Eden. And then the first thing He said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. You think about that. The first command in the whole Bible was a call for sexual intimacy and marriage. And God saw what he had made, including this uh, design and call for human sexuality, and he said, this is very good. Now, we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 7 that sex is not good, is a lie that the Bible confronts directly. So some Christians in the church in Corinth, they wrote to the Apostle Paul and asked him about this. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote... 
It is good for a man not to have sexual relations or sexual contact with a woman. Now, that verse might be confusing at first glance. If you don't recognize, in some of your translations, put quotes around the second half of the verse to help you see this. But, but the second half of the verse is explaining the first, vast, the, the first half of the verse. So it's not, it's not Paul who is saying it's not good to have sexual relations. In the second half of the verse, he's quoting what the Corinthians wrote to him. This is one of the matters about which they wrote to him. They said, or they supposed, it's not good for a man to have sexual relations. Paul, give us your mind on that matter. And then he, he corrects them in what he says next. No, it is good for a husband and wife to have sexual relations. So look at verse 2 and following verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. And each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise the wife to her husband. That is what is good in marriage. And did you see the reason that he introduced this at the beginning of verse 2? Because of the temptation to sexual immorality. If people adopt an overly restrictive, extra-biblical, like hyper-righteousness view of sexuality and say that, that even good sex is not good and immoral. You know what? That leads people to sexual immorality. I think if you would think through people that you've met in your life, you could think of examples of that. Uh, so another maybe way I would illustrate that is, is 1 Timothy 4. You know this? 1 Timothy 4, there are some people who Paul warned were forbidding marriage probably because, almost certainly because included, they were saying there's, there's something immoral about sex. And they were also forbidding eating certain kind of foods. See, bodily pleasures like eating food and having sex, forbidding marriage. And do you know where Paul said that teaching came from that forbid marriage, that would say sex is unholy? That was the teaching of demons. The devil wants you to think that God is against sex. It's just like the lie in the Garden of Eden. Did God made all of these good-looking trees, these things that seem appealing, and then God says you can't have any of them? No, God, God said we could enjoy these things he's made within the confines of his good laws. Well, if you start to believe God is withholding good from us by his laws, then you start to distrust his goodness, you start to distrust his good laws, and you think you've got to sin against God to really have what's good. And so, and so this is one of the wiles of Satan to, to make, uh, in some ways, um, people have the wrong idea about what God's word says is good about sex and marriage. Now, okay, how did some people in the church in Corinth begin to think, maybe it's good not to have sex, even in marriage? Okay, think about this. The church in Corinth is in the middle of a very ungodly culture. Sexual immorality was everywhere. Earlier in chapter 6, it said some of the people in the church in Corinth, their former adulterers, their former homosexuals, their former sexually immoral in other kinds of ways, they've been washed now, though, they've been sanctified. And so this question, though, they've been saved out of all the sexual immorality, it's still all around them, and they think, okay, well, how, how should I relate to sex now and think about uh, engaging in that? And, and there are two kind of problems that were threatening the church in Corinth. Both, both are important. First, there were some false teachers who were telling them, well, you don't worry about it. Sex won't make you unclean or unholy. Not even sexually, sexual immorality will do that because God has saved your soul. God is concerned about your mind. It doesn't matter what you do with this old, dirty, corrupt body anyway. 
in that this is a denigration of the human body. It's called Gnosticism. And I want you to see first in 1 Corinthians 6 how he opposes that error. And here's why I want you to see it is because when Paul opposes this error, he's starting to build a theology. How do Christians think about their bodies? And that's going to lead into, well, then what should Christians do with their bodies if this is what is true about them? So look in the middle of verse 13, middle of verse 13 of chapter 6. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So we're building a Christian must understand that their bodies are first for the Lord. Your body is for the Lord. And next verse, verse 14 says, and God raised the Lord in his body. And so he will also raise us up by his power. Here's the next point. Christian, your bodies are destined for resurrection. Your body is absolutely part of your redemption. It's not the case that the soul is the real you and your real salvation and and your body is this thing God wants to discard. No, your body is for the Lord and he will raise it up in glory and righteousness one day. He explains further in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? That makes you want to say, never! And Paul says, Never! So our bodies are members of Christ. And there's more down in 19. After he says, so flee, because this is true, flee sexual immorality. In 19 he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Okay, so also our bodies as believers, they're temples of the Holy Spirit. And they are not our own, but bought with a price by God. Wow, if all of this is true about our bodies, then the implication that Paul draws at the end of verse 20 surely is true. Therefore, therefore, so glorify God with your body. In light of these truths, Christians must glorify God in their bodies. How should we? Well, in part by fleeing from all the sexual immorality he just talked about and by putting on in marriage this sexual righteousness that he's about to describe. Uh, Here's what I want you to see. In the immediate context, we glorify God with our bodies by completely rejecting the sinful sex described in the verses right above in verse 20 and if married by wholeheartedly practicing the righteous sex described in the verses right after. The chapter divisions in your Bible are not inspired. They were put in later. I'm glad they were. It helps us find things in the Bible. But sometimes there's an unfortunate chapter break, which makes you, in your mind, you finish one chapter and you think, okay, swipe, something new. And what I'm about to read has nothing to do with what I just read. No. What Paul just said, glorify God with your bodies. It's it's that principle that he's working out what's next. Because your body is for the Lord, because your body is destined for resurrection, because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, because your body is a member of Christ, because your body is not your own, but has been bought with a price. Married people, this is what you should do with your body in light of all those sacred truths. You should give it in love to your spouse. You honor the truth. Your body is not your own, but belongs to the Lord by acting like your body is not your own in marriage, but is instead for the benefit of your spouse. You, 
You glorify God with your body by giving your body in love to your spouse and intimacy. So you see, sex and marriage is not just permissible. It's not just that God says, well, if, if you really want to do it, here's one context where I won't say it's sin. No. Sex and marriage is not just permitted in Scripture. It is commanded by the Lord. Verse 2 of, of 1 Corinthians 7 was a command. Let each man have his own wife. Each woman have his own have her husband. In verse 5 is another command. Do not deprive one another. Context of sex in marriage. How we glorify God with our bodies. This is part of how, if you're a married person, you need to think, if, since God has claimed me and saved me and had mercy on me, and I'm supposed to, Romans 12 says, present my body to him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable in Christ. What do I need to do? Well, I need, I need to serve other people with my body, and that includes sexual intimacy and marriage. It is for the glory of God in light of what Christ has done for us. Uh, scripture in Hebrews 13.4 calls the marriage bed undefiled. The, the marriage bed is undefiled. It should be kept undefiled. That means the marriage bed is unstained, pure, clean, and the scripture also says that believers can have relations with their spouse in a way that is holy, meaning set apart for God, for his purposes, for his glory, even if that spouse is an unbeliever. That's 1 Corinthians 7. It seems like another thing that the Corinthians ask Paul about is like, hey, uh, well, these two unbelievers are married. One of them got saved, and now they're married to someone whose body is not a temple of the Holy Spirit. What should they do? Is this okay? And Paul tells them in in. Actually, it's not the case that the believing wife is made unholy by her sexual union with her unbelieving husband, but as far as their union goes, it's kind of the opposite. Verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now, there, there's a lot that we can unpack and ask, ask about that verse, but for this context, let's just understand what it's saying, that a believer can still uh, give himself or herself in love to her spouse, even if, even if that spouse is an unbeliever in it. And for, from, for her part, her act of service and love, it is something that is completely holy and acceptable to God in Christ Jesus. This is important to understand. And here's why. One reason why. right? Because there are some who genuinely do struggle with whether or not sex and marriage can be holy, they struggle to have a clean conscience about it. Maybe it's because of how much sexual immorality they've been exposed to or experienced themselves, maybe some kind of abuse, or maybe they just have, have had a past of sexual morality. But, but even, so that obviously is important for them, but even those who you know, can engage in sex and marriage with a clean conscience, it's like, I don't, I don't think this is unclean or wrong, that's fine. They also still need to see that this is, to be done explicitly for the glory of God. Because you know what? If they don't know that that's the purpose for it, they'll engage in it for some other purpose. Right? If sex and marriage is not purposely done for the glory of God, it will be done for some other purpose. Inevitably, if not for God, it will become something selfish. If it's not done for the glory of God, it will become something idolatrous. If, if you are not pursuing intimacy in marriage in a God-centered way, it will become something you pursue in a self-centered way. See? And, and remember the, the lecture you heard in weekend one about the heart and worship? Your heart is always worshiping. 
always worshiping. You're always treasuring something most in your mind, in your heart, trusting in something most in your mind. Well, well, the, the heart of worship doesn't turn off even in those most private and precious moments with your spouse. The question is not whether or not you are worshiping then in the marriage bed, but what are you worshiping? Are you esteeming God? Are you seeking to, to value Him and show His excellencies in the way that you're trying to serve and love your spouse? You know, if you don't, right, even, even in a faithful marriage in the sense that there's no adultery, someone can make an idol out of sex. It's the, the act of sex itself. Someone can make an idol of themselves and, and make their will the ultimate thing that they're serving in the marriage bed. Someone can make a, an idol of their spouse and in, in, in a um, kind of fear of man kind of way, like trust in their spouse that, that their spouse is the one who ultimately can make them happy or make them safe or make them secure. And, and so then, then the way that they interact with them in the marriage bed is, is in... In, in an idolatrous way and in a way that's not just kind of flee, free, glad-hearted for the glory of God serving them, but in order to try and get some, some self-interest from them. This is very important. We have to put on this mind based on 1 Corinthians 7. When we give ourselves to our spouses, this is for the glory of God in our bodies. That's the first foundational biblical truth of sex and marriage. It's for the glory of God. But, but how can it be done for that purpose? The next main truth teaches us. Sex and marriage is about self-giving, not selfish getting. It's about self-giving, not selfish getting. So look again at uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Verse 2. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality... Each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. Okay, what is the way in which they should have each other? The next verse explains, verse 3. It's about giving. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Some say should fulfill his obligation. I think give is a very good translation there. Apodidomi is the Greek word. Didomi means give. To give what is owed to her wife, and likewise the wife to the husband. So she should give to her husband his conjugal rights. So this verse is talking about the rights of each other, but in a way that's not saying the husband is thinking about his own rights, demanding it from the wife, but the husband is wanting to give to the wife in light of what's owed to her. And the wife is not coming in, insisting on her own rights, and demanding that the husband give that to her. She doesn't have the mindset of getting. She shouldn't. She comes in thinking about him and giving to him. Each married Christian should see sex as an opportunity for self-giving, not selfish getting. They, they need to come to bed thinking, I am here to give a gift to the one that I love. I'm not here to, to get something from her. Now, 1 Corinthians 7, 7 specifically calls marriage, like singleness, a gift from God. The Greek word is charisma. And the idea with that word, it's, it's a freely bestowed gift of God's grace. It's especially meant to be used to bless and benefit another. So, so in God's gift of marriage, we see, I'm sorry, feel free to flag me if, if I miss the, I grow behind on the PowerPoint. I'm reading the second bulletin uh, bullet point here. Your sexuality was not given to you 
for your own self-gratification. If God gave the gift of sex and marriage to you, he did so you could give that gift to your spouse for their benefit. Your sexuality belongs to your spouse. The gift of sex and marriage is a gift from God and you are to steward it for his glory by giving that gift to your spouse, seeking to bless her, benefit her, and wives him. Now verse 3 also puts this angle on it, um, that in the sexual relationship, each spouse is called to focus on fulfilling their own obligation to their spouse. Obligation. As joyfully giving their sexuality to the other to whom it rightfully belongs. So, so think about how should we carry out all of our holy obligations that we have before God. Um, we're supposed to carry them out with joy, with a wholehearted willingness, not, not uh, disengaged drudgery. So don't let this uh, word obligation or rights in this verse put a damper on the way you think about what, what this should actually look like or be like. It's just the idea that when you give yourself, when you give the gift of your sexuality to your spouse as God intends, that you are not like putting them in your debt. Now they really owe you. No, you're giving them something that's already theirs according to God's design. And that, that's the next implication here of this reality. This means neither the husband nor wife should think they are putting the other in their debt somehow through sex. Like, now you owe me because I've given this to you. No, when you gave this to me, that was actually what God said you owed. (laughs) Nor think that the other then must earn intimacy or pay for it or trade for the satisfaction of sex. Uh, One commentator called that marital prostitution. It it is an obligation each has to the other because God has joined them together. So so the other doesn't have to earn it. They're not indebted to you when you share. God gave this gift to you to give to them. So so it is rightfully theirs. A Christian should never use use sex to manipulate or, or punish, but to freely and graciously give of themselves. Another important perspective from these verses is there's complete mutuality in this self-giving. Complete mutuality in this self-giving. Wives and husbands must see their calling in sex as to seek the satisfaction of the other, and that means God has made each equally able to do so. This mutuality was so clear in verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4. The Holy Spirit really emphasized this. You might think that people are prone to get the wrong idea. Verse 2, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Verse 3 starts with the husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Likewise, the wife to the husband. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. The wife does. This, this was a radical perspective in the day when Paul wrote this, because in those days, may, maybe kind of like these days, but in an even more radical way, sex was thought of as being something especially for the man, for the husband. But according to God, it's for both, equally. And that means, again, this implies both husband and wife are equally able 
to give themselves sexually to the other in a way that will please them. That is true biblically, and that is true biologically. They're equally called to pursue that. And you see, what a beautiful picture this is of just completely reciprocal and mutual self-giving. It's a beautiful picture. And that is why sex and marriage is truly worthy of the word love. Since sex and marriage is a call to complete self-giving for the sake of the other, not self-centered, not self-focused, not self-seeking, we understand then that sex really is a call to love. What is the essence of love? It's giving what you have and are to another for their good and their good pleasure. And that's what spouses are called to do in the marriage bed. And you know, we shouldn't be surprised that God's commands regarding sex and marriage boil down to just love. Because didn't Jesus say... All of the commands of God boil down to love. Love God, love your neighbor. And so God's plan for sexuality and marriage boils down to glorify God with your bodies and give yourself to your spouse for their blessing and benefit and joy. So love fulfills all the law of God, including the verses about sex and marriage. I just said that. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, Let all that you do be done in love. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. Let Now we have let all that you do be done in love. This includes sex and marriage. We do it for the glory of God. We do it in love. Here's another angle then you can put on this. Therefore, all the characteristics of godly love should be manifest in the self-giving love of sex and marriage, which, which is described in 1 Corinthians 13.4 through 6. So, so the self-giving love of sex and marriage should be patient and kind, not arrogant, not rude, not insisting on its own way, not irritable, not resentful, hopeful, charitable, persevering. What a beautiful way to describe what, what, what fruits should, should characterize the relationship of sex and marriage. Now here's a good way to just wrap up this main truth. In marital sex, as in always, we glorify God by keeping his law of love and being like Christ. Being like Christ, we glorify God when we reflect the image of his son. And these scriptures that I've listed about Christ's likeness, they fit so well the pattern of sexual giving that, that has come out, I've drawn out of 1 Corinthians 7. So Philippians 2, do you know this one? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility... Think about this in the context of sex and marriage. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Mark 10, 45, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Let Christians do this in the marriage bed. Romans 15 says we have an obligation not to please ourselves, but to please our neighbor for their good, for their building up, because Christ did not please himself. This is the kind of mind 1 Corinthians 7 calls couples to put on in sexual intimacy. It is the mind of Christ, the mind of love, counting the other more significant, looking to the interests of other, looking to serve and not be served, looking to please before being pleased. This is the way married believers can glorify God with their bodies with respect to their sexuality. Here's our third foundational truth for a biblical view of sex. Sex expresses and deepens the greater comprehensive oneness of marriage. 
Now it's very clear in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 7, 7, 1 Corinthians 7, although I, maybe the, I don't know, never mind. Uh, it's very clear, 1 Corinthians 7, that's the sex that's commended is in the context of a committed marriage. A husband and a wife. Verse 2 said, Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. One man, one woman, one flesh. Now, when you understand uh, what God's design for marriage is, though, a little, little more deeply, I think you can see actually how sex fits right into that design. Sex is designed by God to be this consummate expression of a larger calling placed on husbands and wives to give all that they are and have to and for the other. If you understand that's God's call of marriage, that helps you to make sense of this radical, sounds radical claim in 1 Corinthians 7. What? The body of the wife belongs to the husband? The body of the husband belongs to the wife? Listen, in marriage... It's not just your body that you're called to give to your spouse, but your everything. Your body, your bank account, your home, everything. To give yourself wholly to the other. If that's what marriage is, of course, of course your body is included in that. Belongs to the other. Uh, we find this, this plan in the Bible to, to share all that I am and have with mine and with my wife and to receive all that she is and has as mine. Uh, we, we find that plan for marriage in the beginning. Uh, turn to Genesis 1 to see this. Genesis 1, if you'd like. And there we're going to see how sex fits into this, this bigger plan God has for marriage. So in Genesis 1, God makes man in his image. He makes them male and female, meaning he makes them capable of marital union. He makes them capable of sexual union. He makes them capable of procreation, of having children. And so right after that, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Like I pointed out earlier, the first command in the Bible calls humans to have relations with their spouse and have children together. That's God's idea of a blessing. God makes human beings sexual creatures and immediately calls them to use those capacities. And for the sake of, of, of being fruitful, we see here how having children or procreation is an essential part of God's good purpose for sex. In many ways, so, so many of the sexual perversions and immoralities that are celebrated in our culture today are historically and logically downstream of divorcing sex and children. And, and, and well, this fits into the broader point we're on right now, the comprehensive oneness of marriage, right? Because sex is meant to be enjoyed only in this relationship of committed love where you, where you plan and promise to build a whole life with someone and have a home together and have a family together. Sex is meant to be part of this bigger, complete oneness of your whole lives, and the fact that sex leads to having children with the other person helps to prove this point because no one wants to have kids with someone that they don't plan to build a life together with. Keep all these things together. Now, now Genesis chapter 2 retells the story of the creation of, of man and woman, but, but here it, it zooms in. And here we see explicitly that God institutes marriage as this context in which sex and children are given. And he defines marriage as one man and one woman becoming one flesh. 
And, and he says in Genesis 2.24 that this is not just what is describing Adam and Eve's relationship, but this is what will be true of all future marriages. 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What does that mean? Flesh in this context refers to more than just someone's body. Flesh in the Old Testament often means uh, the whole person, someone's whole life. You think all flesh is like grass. All flesh shall shall see the glory of God, all people. Okay, so I really love the way that I found uh, one time Ray Ortland explained this. So I just printed it in your uh, notes. Follow along as I read this paragraph in your notes, not on the screen because... That's what it looks like on the screen. All right, one flesh is the biblical definition of marriage in two brief but freighted words. The expression, this expression names marriage as one mortal life fully shared. The word one bespeaks a life fully shared. And the word flesh suggests suggests the transient mortality of this life. So, So in the one flesh union of marriage, all the boundaries between a man and a woman fall away and the married couple comes together completely as long as they both shall live. In in real terms, two selfish me's start learning to think like one unified us. Building a new life together with one total everything, one story, one purpose, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one budget, one family, and so forth. See, that's the context in which you share one bed with someone. Marriage removes all barriers and replaces them with this comprehensive oneness. It's this all-encompassing unity that sets marriage apart as something different than uh, friendship. It's more more important, demanding than even the most intense friendship. What distinguishes a marriage is the all-inclusive scope of its claims upon both the man and the woman... uh, 2.24, the man leaves father and mother to cling to his wife. The two become one flesh, one mortal life, fully shared with total openness, total access, total solidarity for the rest of their earthly days. That total, total oneness where everything that belongs to one becomes the other and everything that belongs to one becomes the other. It it is a a full self-giving to the other. And so do you see how the self-giving in, in sex reflects this deeper and more comprehensive oneness and unity that God says is definitional of, of marriage. When a man and woman share one bed, it, 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 it is part of and points to the sharing of everything in marriage. And it reflects then this larger design of marriage to become one. And, and, it, and it, should, it, it should drive them to be, be even more willing and, and free to share all that they have with the other. So, okay, in, in this understanding, here's another quote that I thought was really helpful. Uh, Tim Keller said, Sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people reciprocally to say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. That is, I'm married to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. I, just, I, want, you, 
I want you to catch a vision for this. There will be a practical point that comes from it um, soon. But, but this really shows the beauty of God's design for sex, the safety of God's design for sex, uh, that, that, it is, that it is part of this broader, bigger self-giving of entire persons for as long as they both shall live. And so then that shows that any form of sex that's not in that context it does, it cheapens the joys and the meaning and the significance and the safety and the beauty of what God designed sex to be a part of, what God designed it to reflect and promote a broader oneness in marriage, whole self-giving. Okay, next on your outline. A spouse should always seek to receive the other's whole self-giving in marriage and in sex with, with honoring and affirmation and gratitude and praise like Adam did here. Everyone's turning a page. Does that mean I, did I skip something in your lost or? No. Okay, all right. This is what Adam did, okay? Adam, God brought Eve to Adam and, and he said, he started speaking in poetry. He said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He spoke about her in, in a way that showed such great esteem for her, expressed such great thankfulness to her. And when someone you know, becomes vulnerable to the point of, of what sex is supposed to represent and marriage is supposed to be, I'm giving everything that I am to you. It is so important for us to receive the gift, this, this whole self-giving in a way that expresses honor and, and gratitude and, and it leads to this kind of relationship in verse 25 of Genesis 2. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This wonderfully free and trusting way. that The total giving of the self and the total glad reception of the other. Now next point on your handout. This is also very important. Giving yourself exclusive, entirely in marriage entails giving yourself exclusively to your spouse. If, if, if you say... All I am for you, that requires that you're saying just for you. If you're not giving yourself only to your spouse sexually, you're not giving yourself completely. There's, there's part of you, uh, of your sexuality that you're holding back and not giving to your spouse. And remember how deep the Bible teaches us that this exclusive self-giving should go. It's not just what we do with our bodies. Jesus said it's also what we do with our eyes and also what we do with our desires. If you look at a woman with lust, what does lust mean? Lust is just the Greek word for desire. So the, the call of this comprehensive oneness and the exclusivity of it is not just two people saying, I give all I am to you, namely my body. No, I give to you and just you my body, my eyes, my sexual desires, my thoughts. All of that is just for you. It's beautiful. And, and if a spouse will, if spouses commit to pursuing that kind of exclusive, deep, comprehensive oneness, then, then they should experience what the next line on your notes says. That, that sex and marriage preserves and deepens this bigger relational oneness. And, and the, then the deeper relational oneness makes sex more meaningful and enjoyable. So there's this mutually reinforcing upward spiral, right? The marital oneness, the bigger unity, makes the sexual union more meaningful and joyful and safe. And then the sexual union makes the marital oneness deeper and, and even safer and more joyful. And then on and on it goes. That is, that is God's plan for sex and marriage. 
Now, if you understand that connection, then here's the practical thing. If you understand this deep connection between comprehensive marital relational oneness and marital sex, then, then we see can understand why much conflicts over sex and marriage is rooted in more fundamental relational problems. If sex is meant to reflect and cultivate the larger oneness, then that means when there's an issue in the larger oneness, their relationship, it will almost certainly negatively affect the sexual relationship. So biblical counselor Wayne Mack says, many times the sexual problems of married people are not really sexual problems. Poor sexual adjustment is often like the red warning light on the dashboard of an automobile. The red light is an indication that the car has some other problem. And and so I put on your notes to try and tease this out that, that it's important for pursuing biblical sexual intimacy in marriage and for, for trying to prevent against uh, problems and hindrances and difficulties there that a husband and wife must pursue intimacy and unity and closeness with one another, broadly speaking, not just sexually. They must continue to connect, to show care, to serve, to take interest, to have fun, to cultivate romance, to resolve conflict, to love one another in their more fundamental relationship of companionship. Remember, when God brought Eve to Adam, such that the two became one flesh, and they had children, they had relations, they had children, God didn't say, it is not good for man to be celibate, I will will make a helper for him. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. So he made a companion that sex and marriage should be part of this broader, sweet companionship that exists amongst married people. And, and this is also celebrated in a beautiful way in Song of Songs or Song of Solomon 5.16. The bride praises the bridegroom and she celebrates that this man is not just her lover, but her friend. She, Song of Solomon 5.16, he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend. O daughters of Jerusalem. You shouldn't expect a couple to have a healthy, joyful, sexual relationship, at least not for long, if they stop really connecting and communicating and forgiving and cultivating a deep friendship and a companionship, showing each other care and attention and joy in the other in lots of ways that are not explicitly sexual. And so uh, Jim Neuheiser wrote very perceptively, some husbands overlook or neglecting cultivating such a friendship with their wives. And as a result, the sexual union becomes more difficult because she is tempted to feel that he is merely using her body while not really caring for her personally. This is my beloved and this is my friend. The, the union, the, one, the self-giving oneness of sex is, is rooted in and reflects this greater self-giving oneness of sweet companionship and friendship and love and romance and everything that the marriage relationship of oneness is supposed to be. Okay, now here's the next a foundational truth for a biblical view of sex. And the Bible is actually really clear about this one, uncomfortably clear about this one. That One, two, three, four. Sex and marriage is meant to be delightful enjoyed as a good gift from a good God. So when when the the devil 
whispers the lie of the Garden of Eden. God is against your joy. God is against your good. And so he, he's against sex. Or he's against enjoying it too much. You can say, you know, get behind me, Satan. That is not true. The Bible commands, one of my favorite commands in the Bible, commands spouses to enjoy one another. Ecclesiastes 9.9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. It honors God when His good gifts are enjoyed and received with thankfulness. 1 Timothy 6.17, God says God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. If I give my son a gift, what, what, what honors me as the giver of that gift when he starts to play with it and he really likes it? If he were to, if he were to turn to me and say, Dad, thank you for this gift. It looks really fun, but I, I, I don't want to enjoy this because I just want to enjoy you. It's like, well, first I say, that's really weird that you said that, but I mean, <laughs> I, I want you to enjoy this gift that I gave you. That does honor your relationship with me, that you would enjoy this that I gave you. And just be thankful toward me. Just remember that I gave it to you and know that I love you and enjoy it. First uh, Timothy 4, we talked about that verse earlier. Ephesians 5, 3 and 4 opposes sexual immorality and ingratitude. Sexual immorality is, is, is a, a kind of covetous of heart, a kind of greed. When we receive uh, the sexual gift that God has given us, if we're married with thankfulness, that, that directly opposes the, the sinful heart of sexual immorality. Okay, so this honors God. This is part of how we glorify God with our bodies when we enjoy the ways that He has told us we should use them in marriage and tell Him thank you. Pray prayers of thanksgiving with your spouse. Now, Scripture also celebrates and encourages the pleasures of marital sex. Proverbs 5 is a key passage about this. You know, Proverbs 5 through 7 is like the longest sustained treatment in the Bible about sexual immorality. And right in the middle of it is, is this, probably the strongest celebration of the delights of marital sex in the Bible. And the other largest passage in the Bible that I can think of that addresses sexual morality is 2 Corinthians 6. And sure enough, right after that, God gives these instructions about the goodness of sex and marriage. God does not want us to get the wrong idea about this, even with his warnings about sexual morality. Proverbs 5, 15 it speaks poetically about sexual desire as thirst. And he writes, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. That's a poetic way of saying what Paul did in 1 Corinthians 7. Let each have his own spouse. And, and now Proverbs 5.18 says, let your fountain, again this water imagery, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in or be glad in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all time with delight. And, and fill with delight, the verb there, it, it's the water metaphor. It's drink, drink your thirst till it's quenched. Drink to the point of satisfaction. Drink your fill. Take your fill of love. And then the last line of verse 19 adds 
A verse we can't hardly believe is in the Bible if we have a wrong view of God's goodness. It says, be intoxicated always in her love. Be carried away by her love. Be exhilarated by her love. Be ravished by her love, other translations say. All right, you don't need to be a Bible scholar to understand that these verses are telling married couples to try to enjoy sexual relations with one another. Like, like, you know, level 10, both qualitatively and quantitatively concerning the quality. The proverb says, be filled with delight, be carried away by sexual love. Concerning the quantity, the proverb just said, be filled at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. And, and there's a whole book of the Bible that talks this way about the delights of uh, sexual union and marriage and, and more broadly, the oneness of marriage. The Song of Solomon. Now, speaking about Proverbs 5, Ray Orland wrote this. And here, I think it's, he's, it's good. He's trying to capture both Proverbs 5's strong warning ab, uh, about sexual immorality and the strong encouragements about sex and marriage. And he, and he sums up Proverbs 5 like this. Sex is like fire. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm. Outside the fireplace, it burns the house down. Proverbs 5 is saying, keep the fire in the marital fireplace and stoke that fire as hot as you can. I think it's a good summary of Proverbs 5. Now, we need to remember, we need to apply the truths we considered earlier to this point, which leads us to the conclusion that both husband and wife are called to aim wholeheartedly and mutually at the pleasure and full satisfaction of the other Remember, sex and marriage is about self-giving, seeking to please the other. But paradoxically, as a Christian, if you have the spirit of Christ and the mind of Christ, this, this, this uh, self-giving, seeking the pleasure of the other way of sexual intimacy is the way you find the most joy in the end. The highest happiness in sex, as in all of life, is experienced in holy giving. It is more blessed to give than receive And so to promote this kind of God-glorifying sexual love, counselors sometimes need to tell couples uh, that that spouses should communicate, excuse me, openly, spouses communicate openly and regularly to know and understand specifically how they can please their spouse most. In this aspect of their relationship, First uh, Peter three seven, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. So husbands seek understanding about this area of your relationship too, how you can serve your wife and help her enjoy this good gift of God, and and vice versa. Now I coupled, in, I copied another paragraph in your notes. I thought just sum this up nicely, and also give some helpful qualifications. This is Jim Newheiser, a biblical counselor who has spoken here at CBCD before. Uh, he wrote. Because your sexuality belongs to your spouse, your object is to learn what will bring him or her the greatest delight, and then to make every effort to make your spouse as happy as possible in this area. Godly, I love this line, godly love finds great pleasure in giving pleasure to the beloved. When each is trying to outdo the other in service and love, there is great joy, and God's ideal for sexual union is realized. Is, is beautiful. We live in a fallen world, so he's got to add a, a qualification paragraph like this. 
Also on your notes, couples have a great deal of freedom to explore and please each other sexually. On the other hand, because a husband and wife are called to serve each other sexually, one of them should never ask the other to do anything unpleasant or painful. Paul states, whatever is not from faith is sin, which tells us any sexual act that goes against the conscience of either spouse is wrong. Some inappropriate sexual interests have been fueled by pornography and sexual idolatry. Unnatural, harmful, or immodest sex acts are wrong. Okay. And we're running low on time. So, um, married couples should come together very regularly, aiming to fully satisfy the sexual desire of the other. That, that's coming from 1 Corinthians 7, 5 again, which says, Do not deprive one another... Except perhaps, so this, this, is, this is not a command, but this is a permission that some couples may choose to have a period of abstinence for, for a limited time. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Apart from that situation, couples should give, not deprive one another, give to each other um, in, in self-giving, serving love regularly. Now, now let, let's talk about this, this criteria for a potential short period of abstinence. There are three criteria that have to be met. Oh, I skipped a paragraph, didn't I, before I talk about that? Okay, so the question is, is asked often, uh, you know, well, well, how often is that? Well, it's different for every couple, isn't it? And here's the general principle. We don't want to become extra biblical and lay down some kind of specific law that's not actually in the Bible, okay? The, the, the Word of God is sufficient. You don't need to add laws to it. So here's just the principle uh, that a couple should come together regularly enough for complete mutual sexual satisfaction as both spouses, what's involved in that though? Both spouses look after the interests of the other, willing to sacrifice their own interests to please the other. Whether... That, that's by serving their spouse insects or serving their spouse by waiting until a little later, just being considerate and kind. And if your goal is mainly to please the other and give the gift of your sexuality to the other, then you have this mind. Would it be a gift for them tonight? And, and really, I, I heard someone say this. I think it's true. It's very common for a, a couple there to be differing levels of sexual desire regarding to frequency and that, that may shift and change over time. But if, if a couple, if they both really have this heart, I want to give to the other, I want to serve to the other, I want to look to the interests of the other, I want to be considerate of the other, I want to please the other, if that is the heart they're bringing to the marriage bed, even if they have differing levels of sexual desire, they are going to figure this out. They are going to be happy in, in the way that their sexual relationship goes, if they can just keep this mind and keep talking to each other openly. And if, if need be, you know, talking with, with um, a counselor who can help them to sort through, do you have this heart? And here are some ways maybe you don't that you're not seeing. Okay, so here's the criteria in 1 Corinthians 7, 5 for a period of abstinence in marriage. It's interesting, this criteria. It's, it's, like, it's like Paul says, you need a special reason not to have sex. You don't need a special reason to come together regularly. And here, here, here is what is permitted, not commanded, but 
So a couple can go their whole married lives and never actually uh, practice this, and they wouldn't be in any sin. This is this is a permission. There has to be mutual consent. No unilateral decisions here. That would fall under the prohibition at the beginning of the verse. Don't deprive one another. So this is clearly agreed upon. Further, it's also a limited time, the scripture says. So it's not just indefinite break with no end in sight. A clearly defined duration and and not too long. A plan to come together again so Satan won't, won't come in with temptations. And finally, this also must be made by mutual agreement for a limited, specific appointed time and for a specific good purpose. A God-glorifying, God-centered purpose like having extra time and focus and fervor to to devote to prayer, similar to how you might fast from food for the purpose of devoting extra time and focus to prayer. Well, you can't fast from food forever, for a long time. You need to eat if you're going to be a healthy person. And couples if they're going to be, have a healthy marriage, need, uh, you know, can't be in this situation for a long time. Um, they need to come together again. Now, lastly, on this point, then, here's the vision of 1 Corinthians 7, because this is intended, this, this happy sexual relationship in a couple, it is intended to be something that prevents against sexual immorality. And also in Proverbs 5, all those commands that said, delight in your spouse, Drink from your own fountain. That came right after saying, watch out for the adulteress. So, so married couples should aim at being so satisfied in their sexual relationship that they are too full. They've, they've drank enough. They're not thirsty anymore. They're too full to seriously consider indulging the temptation to sexual morality. If, if you offer me a muffin right now, I'm going to eat it. I'm hungry. If I ate a big you know, steak dinner with my favorite sides, and then you offered me a muffin, I would say, no, thank you. No. Or I might not even say thank you. Say no, you know. That's the same idea. You, you want to be so, try to serve each other and be so satisfied that, that um, the temptations of Satan even lose some of their teeth. Now, you be careful with this truth. This doesn't mean that someone's sexual immorality is ever the fault of their spouse. No. Jesus said, sexual morality comes from someone's heart from their own evil. But this is one uh, just wisdom principle that God says is the good thing that comes from married couples serving each other in this way, regular, self-giving, loving sexual intimacy. All right. So we're going to have to go through this one really fast, right? One minute. Here we go. Five foundational truths. Here's number five. Sex and marriage is a very good gift, but it's not the ultimate good. Knowing Christ is. Knowing Christ is not ultimate. It's not ultimate in marriage. Sex is a wonderful part of God's plan for marriage, but it is not the main basis or purpose for marriage. Uh, you, You cannot reduce the marital relationship down to the sexual relationship. And if someone wants to get married, mainly for that reason, for the sake of of, uh, engaging in sexual intimacy, um, that's not going to go very well unless their heart changes is not ultimate in marriage, though it's very, it is essential and important and can't be neglected. It's not ultimate. And it's also not ultimate in life, contrary to what our culture says. Sex is a good temporary gift from God that's given to some, though not all, uh, people just in this life, in this brief life that's like a vapor. And, and then uh, it's gone. Because uh, none of us, sex will not be a part of our blessed eternity. Matthew twenty-two thirty 30 
says we will not be married or given and married in heaven to one another because we're going to be a part of an even better marriage, the union of Christ and the church. And the pleasure of knowing Christ in face-to-face fellowship will be so much greater than anything that has ever been experienced by any married couple on this earth. So this is, again, just to show that sex is not ultimate in life, even though it's a very, very good gift. We must be careful not to make an idol out of sex. Then even in marriage, when has it become an idol? Well, when someone is willing to sin to gain sex or respond sinfully when they don't. When the subject of sex becomes a source of anger, quarrels, and conflict, James 4 says that's, that means that someone has some idolatrous desires going on related to uh, something connected to that issue. Also, when you think you must have sex, including in a certain manner or amount, to be happy, safe, or secure, you talk like that. Um, this, this is talking about it in an idolatrous way. But no idol, no idol, including sex, can ever deliver ultimate happiness, uh, security or significance. We, we can only find ultimate satisfaction in knowing Christ. And here's, here's the thing. When, just like anything, when you make an idol out of sex, it, it will disappoint you. Your idols will always disappoint you. Your idols can't come through. Your idols are not the living God. Okay? So if you, if you make an idol out of just, just like Ecclesiastes, you make an idol out of your work, you're going to hate your work eventually. You make an idol out of sex, eventually it's going to to become something that's like a leaking cistern that is so unsatisfying to you. But here's the, if if you make Christ your treasure and glorifying God your highest aim in all of life, including in in the sexual relationship, you find your ultimate satisfaction in Him, then you are free to enjoy all of God's good gifts on earth, including sex, for, for just what they are. And instead of hating them for what they're not and what they can't do, namely give you ultimate happiness, security, and significance, you can appreciate them with thankfulness for what they are because you're finding your ultimate satisfaction in knowing Christ. Let me close in prayer. God, thank you for speaking so comprehensively in your word, so directly in your word about this. We also, we want to give you thanks for the good gift of marriage and the sexual intimacy in it. We acknowledge you, and I pray that you would help these, uh, these saints in this room to be able to, to walk in this righteousness, this God-glorifying righteousness more, the ones who are married, and, and help all of us to be able to, to be equipped to minister these truths to our, our married friends, any of them that come, would ever come to, for counsel from us or help from us related to this issue. God, I pray that you would use us so that your glory would be on display through the ways we minister these truths that talk about your plan and design for sexuality. Uh, You are a great God. You are a gracious God. And we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.